examples that they how they write the songs and the choices they made. So one of the themes related to Hamilton, even though this may not directly deal with the musical, one of the themes we wanted to talk about this year was obviously issues um, related to race in our society. So that's why we have this panel discussion. Thank you to our faculty members for doing that. I'll do quick intros and then I will be gone. Um, to my left is Amy Williamson, who's the department chair of psychology. Thank you, Amy. Uh, to her left is Jeffrey McCauley from sociology. To his left is Suzanne Nasser from uh, counseling. And to her left is Shania Gray, also from counseling. So I want to thank you all, and I will turn it over to Amy. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Okay, welcome again, everybody. Um, I'm going to just kind of give you a quick overview and a little bit about myself. Um, first of all, uh, the title of our talk is Quiet Mouse Don't Get Fed. And basically, it comes from an expression it says, if you don't talk about something, it's not going to get attention, it's not going to get changed. So that's where this, this title came from. Um, the reason we're doing this is because it's a really big topic of conversation right now. Um, I know a lot of you probably don't use Facebook, but um, your parents might, or some older people you know <laughs> might, um, and that's what they're talking about. Um, if you look at the top um, discussed issues, you'll see immigration and racial issues were up there at the top. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the protests that have been happening. Um, so this is a big issue right now. And we wanted to highlight that and talk a little bit about what's going on, what's happening. Um, and that picture in the corner uh, down left, um, I actually took that at the um, Women's March downtown Chicago. There was like 200,000 people there. It was an amazing experience and there was a lot of really cool people. So. Um, you'll be seeing a lot of different images on this slideshow today, and we'll be talking a lot about uh, various topics related to this stuff. All right, I'm going to move on for the introductions. All right, hey, everybody. Uh, so I think we're each going to give a quick introduction about ourselves, saying why we're interested in this topic. Um, so just a little bit about me. I'm a sociology professor here, and uh, as a sociologist, I'm fundamentally concerned about inequalities. I think that you can't study sociology without studying inequalities, so I'm just sort of automatically interested in the topic. I'm also interested in the topic on a more personal level, being in an interracial relationship with my significant other, Fernando. Um, and there's our dog, Charlie, back there, too. I had to include the whole family there. Um, so being a person who doesn't identify as heterosexual, um, I'm automatically, I think in a lot of ways, primed to think about systems of difference and oppression and so on. And then also being an in, in an interracial relationship, um, these are just some issues that uh, my family experiences, so I'm happy to be talking about a lot of these issues today. Hi, everyone. My name is Suzanne Nasser. I'm a full-time faculty member here at the college. I work in one of the best departments on campus, which is the Counseling and Career Development Center. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> got some support here. Um, I've been working here for about 10 years and prior to coming to Moraine Valley I used to work with uh, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. I was born in Palestine and I am a proud daughter of immigrants and um, yesterday when I was rehearsing my husband reminded me that I'm also married to an immigrant. I was raised on the southwest side of Chicago in the heart of one of the largest Arab American communities in the United States. I am a product of Chicago's Arab Community Center, El Marcas, which means center. I'm a second generation community activist 
And outside of my work and my awesome family, I dedicate my time to the Arab American Action Network. Um, I'm a board member of that not-for-profit social service agency. And if any of you have been following the news the past couple of weeks, um, that agency, the Arab American Action Network, is actually the one that has been orchestrating and taking the lead in the protests that you saw at O'Hare Airport and last week at the doorstep of uh, Department of Homeland Security. So I'm proud to be affiliated with that um, organization. I'm also a runner with um, Team Palestine for PCRF, another incredible um, organization that's doing some great work both locally and internationally. So why is this topic important to me? Um, I think this topic, the work and the organizing that goes along with it is important to me in its simplest form because of who I am as an Arab American female Muslim, because of who I am as a social worker, and because of who I am as an educator. Hi everyone, my name is Shania Gray. Um, so this is a collage of me and my life. So I grew up in the Caribbean on the island of Barbados. Um, my family is all still there. In the top left you have m me and my mom. Below you have my dad. Um, and then you have my sister and I here who we share the same mom. Um, and then you have my two sisters up there, um, one in blue, one in red and you have my nephews. Um, so growing up in the Caribbean, as you can see, I'm a biracial individual. So I was born to a black mother and a white father. Um, Barbados is 90% African descent, so slaves who had come over from Africa, and is a 5% white and 5% other races. Growing up, I did not experience what we know today as uh, systemic racism because given the nature of the Caribbean, Barbados it is structured differently. But I did experience discrimination and I did wrestle for my whole life. I've wrestled with the fact that I'm a biracial individual, feeling as though um, I didn't belong in one group or the other. So when we talk about this topic of conversation, this has been my whole life. This essentially is who I'm embodied in. Growing up, I didn't get to know my dad's family um, because uh, they didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and even recently, I will speak to you later about an incident I had with my two um, sisters up there, and, we, and uh, I will go a little bit more into it. So when I talk about why this is important to me, it's something that I have lived and breathed every day of my life. So when I came to the US in 2002, and I was introduced to the Lawndale community, um, and I worked there with kids who had been struggling with education, and I was introduced to the systems here in the US, I was appalled, and I wanted to figure out how I could help. So from the time I graduated with my master's in clinical psychology, I spent the last 10 years until I started at Moraine working in the inner cities with people who were marginalized. I worked with homeless people who had just come out of jail, and I worked with people to give them the best help that I could give them. Okay. Okay, um, so that comes to me. So here's, here's probably the big question you're, you're wondering, right? What does the white lady know about any of this? <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my story. Um, this is pictures of my family and I. Um, I am part of a multiracial family. Um, many of my family members are black and Mexican um, and obviously white as well. Um, and I 
the most of my life I've spent dealing with these issues. Now what's been interesting is I grew up in Catholic schools and a lot of what we were taught, if any of you are familiar with it, um, is you know, love each other and care for each other and treat your, you know, your neighbor as your brother and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I really took that to heart. Um, growing up, I went on, went to a Catholic college and looked at a lot of social justice issues and studied social justice and ended up, um, after I finished my master's degree, coming out and working with people who were oppressed. I worked with the homeless, the developmentally disabled, people with chronic mental illness, and kids in the foster care system. And so I was an advocate for people who didn't really have a voice. And I really found that that was a, a good niche for me. Um, when I got married to my husband, I thought, oh, I, I know this game. You know, I know what oppression's about. I know what the deal is with race. I know all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, it just, I wasn't prepared <laughs> for what life was like um, for people of color on a day-to-day -day basis. I had heard stories and I had been in classes and things like that. But living with it, what I came to understand is that um, white people have the benefit of really not thinking about race. I didn't think about it. I just really didn't think about it day to day. It wasn't something that was on my mind. It wasn't something that I had to think about um, until I had my family. Um, and then I re realized I had to think about it every day. It's a topic of conversation um, in my household. And you know, I have to say, thankfully, there haven't been a ton of issues that have come up for me. Um, I have one more slide here. Um, but you know, the people that I really care about and love are, are a lot of them are people of color. And what really made me sad was seeing how these people who I knew were amazing, beautiful, loving people go out into the world and be treated in a way that people didn't understand that. And I found myself getting really, really sad about that. Um, so what I ended up doing was just feeling like, okay, I can't just sit here with this. I have to do something about it. And so I started doing things like talking about it. I published articles about biracial um, students and how to work with them in the classroom and, and different things like that and kind of took on some political stuff too, which is what I keep doing now. Um, and like I said, I, I think things have gotten better, but I think we still have a lot of work to do. And I think it's my duty as somebody who has privilege um, to be out there speaking about this. Um, what I do know is that, you know, when I look at any of you, I can see our common humanity. You know, we all have common humanity, no matter what color you are. And I can spend my entire day surrounded by my family who I love and care about and, you know, be involved in, you know, some awesome stuff. But at the end of the day, I still know that there's an endless well of pain that exists for a lot of people, that there's a lot of people who are suffering and there's still a lot of hate out there. And even though I know we're all made of the same stuff, um, there's just so many people who don't feel that. So I try to focus on the bright side and the way I strive to find hope in every situation is to look around me at the good things um, I think all of us human beings are good at doing that. But sometimes when I see the pain of the world, it, it fills me up and I know that I'm part of that. That it's part of what it means to be human and it's part of what it means to be white in this society. 
So what I have to do is go back to thinking about finding a place where we can remember that no matter what, we're all having a, the same experience as humans. And we're held, if nothing else, by the gravity of this earth. We're all part of this. We'll all go back to the dirt that we came from, no matter how many of us forget in between that we're different. Deep down, we're all the same. And so I hope that through our presentation today, we can show you some of this and give you a window into the lives of others and hopefully find some shared humanity. Okay, I'm going to start off next by, by asking a question to the panelists, and then each of us are going to respond um, to the questions. So the first question is, shouldn't we be over racism? <laughs> shouldn't we be over racism? Isn't that something of the past? Aren't we, aren't we over that by now? Uh, if we think about this question, shouldn't we be over racism, I think we have to consider for a little while um, how we think about history. History is not just a collection of facts that happened in the past, uh, but history is a cultural product. History is an idea that's presented to people by those who are in power to serve a specific end. Uh, we can see which histories get shown and which histories get ignored. And one way you can think about that is how you learned about history probably uh, in high school and maybe in the required history classes that you have to take in college. Uh, so if we think about if you take a world history class, if you take a, uh, the required history classes in high school, you might learn history as something like this. History started in Greece, my pointer's not working very well. Uh, history started in Greece, then history went to Italy, then history went to Western Europe, then history went to the United States, and that's history, right? Wow. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the history lesson that we learn, right? Wow. And if you're paying attention, there's a whole lot of the rest of the world there to look at, right? Um, so one thing to think about is, you know, whose histories get told? Whose histories get forgotten? And why are histories constructed in that way? The ways in which we learn history and the way that historical stories are perpetuated serve the interests of those who are in power, because they're the ones who are telling the history. This idea that history is written by the winners is very much a thing. Okay, so let's, now that we've taken history over to the United States, uh, let's look at the history of the United States just a little bit. We can think about how history is portrayed in public discourse and mass media, and again, what stories are told. So maybe you'll think about a nice Disney movie with Pocahontas, right? If you watch the movie Pocahontas, you might have a slightly skewed understanding of American history, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe just a little, uh, little misunderstanding of what's going on here. Uh, if you watch the movie Pocahontas, you'll get the idea that Pocahontas marries John Smith and the natives and the pilgrims live happily ever after, <laughs> right? And uh, that's just, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of laughing about it, but that's not <laughs> obviously what happened, right? Uh, we can see, well, first of all, Pocahontas did not marry John Smith, and there's no real discussion about whose resources were stolen, uh, whose lives were taken, and the genocidal acts experienced by the indigenous people who already were here. Uh, that history doesn't really get talked about a whole lot, or it's brushed over quite a bit, and I'll return to that in a little bit here. 
Um, as we're moving forward, we can think about this idea of manifest destiny. Maybe in your, if your history class, you'll learn about this. And this is the idea of, of American progress, which is actually the name of this painting by a painter called John Gast. American progress. As American culture moved west across the frontier, you could see how progress was supposed to come along with it. You can see how she's taking power lines with her and how the right side of the painting is light and the left side of the painting is dark. Um, this is supposed to represent American progress. As we move across the continent, uh, it's supposedly improving what's happening there and, and bringing culture to where there wasn't culture. But of course there was already culture there. There were people who were already living here. But we talk about the West as though it was just this open expanse of land that um, was ready to be occupied by the white settlers who I call colonizers. Uh, along these lines, we can think about the relationship between the United States and Mexico. Uh, so this is a map of the United States and Mexico before white people illegally went to Mexico. Uh, we, you hear a lot of discussion about <laughs> Mexican people illegally coming to the United States, um, but we don't always hear the discussion about all the times that white people illegally went into Mexico. The United States engaged in an illegal war in which the United States government took about half of the land of Mexico. This is what Mexico used to look like before white people illegally went into Mexico. Um, this isn't the history that we really learn about. This isn't the history that we talk about, right? All of those states, Texas to California, uh, were part of northern Mexico that were illegally taken by whites. Um, so we have a, this conversation about uh, Mexican people crossing the border, but maybe in this instance we can see that the border actually crossed the people who were already living there. Uh, we have people who are living in Texas who um, have Mexican descent who have been there for, you know, 100 generations, you know, um, but the, the border literally crossed them. Okay, so I just have a quick blank slide here because I want to give you a trigger warning. The next uh, slide is um, not necessarily something that people maybe want to see, so just want to make sure you're aware of that. Um, if we're thinking about the history of the United States, this history that we don't often talk about, people say, well, shouldn't we be past all this stuff now? Shouldn't we be past uh, the Trail of Tears? Shouldn't we be past the Slave Gordon with the whip marks on his back? Sorry, it's hard for me <laughs> to think about that as well. The question is, shouldn't we be over racism? Isn't this something of the past? Aren't we done with this now? How often do you hear people say, shouldn't we be over this? Isn't this in the past already? Isn't this, that was so long ago. But you know what we, we also hear people say? Remember the Alamo. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. Uh, so here's an instance where Mexican forces vanquished whites. Uh, this is a battle that the Mexican army won, and they won it. <laughs> there was no survivors on the white side. Um, so white settlers in Texas say, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo. We say, never forget 9-11, never forget 9-11. When it's white people who die, you're never supposed to forget. You're never supposed to forget when white people die. But when other people die, we say, well, aren't we supposed to be over racism? Isn't that something of the past? Shouldn't we be done with that by now? Um, that's it for my portion of that. So what I'd like to do to help um, address the question of shouldn't we be over racism is to bring into the conversation um, the voice and the expertise of Angela Davis. And um, you see her picture up there in the middle. For those of you that are unfamiliar with who Angela Davis is, um, I got to meet her actually a couple of years ago at UIC. It was spectacular. Um, she's, a, she's a professor, she's an activist, she's a feminist, and she's a revolutionary. 
And she put it perfectly uh, when she said, and I quote, having a black president has not changed the conditions of black people. Even though black individuals have made great strides economically, socially, and politically, as evidenced by having Barack Obama as our president, the overwhelming number of black people are still facing institutionalized racism. Some see Obama's presidency as one that signifies or symbolizing the end of racism, but obviously that is not the reality we live in today. What his election did signal, she says, was that it was possible to elect a black person into office. In a separate interview, she was asked to talk and reflect on the deaths of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, and you see their pictures up there on the slide as well. For those of you that don't remember the story of Trayvon Martin, he is the young um, black uh, teen. I think he was, I don't know if he was 12 or 15 years old. Um, when he was on his way home from buying candy and was shot and killed um, by uh, George Zimmerman, who was uh, basically a, in my opinion, and some argue the same, um, a racist neighborhood watch volunteer. During the interview, Angela reflected back on the murder of Trayvon and Zimmerman, who, by the way, was later acquitted of his murder. And Angela said that Zimmerman and his so-called role as watch coordinator reminded her of those who were part of the slave patrols during the slave era. In that very same interview, she was asked by the reporter if she was angered by the failure of a grand jury to indict a white police officer for shooting dead Michael Brown, another unarmed black man, this time in Ferguson, Missouri. She responded, quote, the problem with always pursuing the individual perpetrator in all of the many cases that involve police violence is that one reinvents the wheel each time and it cannot possibly begin to reduce the racist police violence we see. Which is not to say that individual perpetrators should not be held accountable. They should, she said. But I think what Angela Davis is really alluding to here is our failure as a society to address racism in a larger sense, right? Mm -hmm. To look at racism as an institutionalized form, a structural form of racism. So are people of color and minorities today still living the struggle? I think the answer simply is yes. And I'm going to ask for all of us here in this room to really be mindful of that um, and for us to work toward the eradication of racism, not just on an individual level, but as Angela was alluding to and others um, who organize towards social justice in a larger sense, that we work together to eradicate racism, bigotry, sexism, overt and covert microaggressions facing these groups. I ask us to simply shift our perspective and to start seeing things in a different lens. Okay, so first, I'm gonna recognize the elephant in the room. There are two types of people in here. There are those who are happy who are talking about this conversation, and there are those of you who are here because you were told to come by your class and it's really uncomfortable for you because you've not been in a world where you've had these conversations before. But I want you to consciously right now take that discomfort and channel it to learn something today. And by the end of this, hopefully you will get some stuff you can take away. Okay, so when we ask, shouldn't we be over racism? 
first I want to start by asking or by giving you a quick definition of racism. Because one of the things today is I realize people don't understand that definition of racism. So according to the USA canon of critical race studies and the definition up there, being racist means that your behavior or attitude towards people will favor an outcome that privileges white racialized people, that privileges a white supremacist value system in the USA. USA racism means that USA society has built and continued to organize hierarchies of power around a white supremacist value system. Such a system means white racialized people end up collectively benefiting from the structural, systemic, institutional arrangement of power, privilege, and resources. So racism is not just about, she said something to me that I don't like, or she said something to me because of the color of my skin. Racism is much deeper and it's entrenched in the DNA of this country. Here we have a timeline of when, um, of when we go back in history. We look at American slavery, which began 1619 and went straight up to 1865 um, when it ended with the Civil War. Then we had 89 years of what we call segregation or Jim Crow. And then we have post-Jim Crow, post-civil rights, which um, this has 1954, but some would say it, it, that period was start in the 1960s. Now, if you think about it, when you go to a doctor, right, and you have something wrong, the first thing the doctor has you do is fill out a bunch of forms. And this form asks your history, what diseases your you've had in your history, what diseases your parents have had, and the doctor goes in debt to help figure out the symptoms. Because we've learned some diseases are genetic and you have a greater predisposition for certain diseases. So when we talk about addressing racism in this country, there's no way we can do it or we can say we're over it when we haven't gone back to even look at that this country's DNA was founded on racism. Slavery was a racist, okay? Organizations that exist today, like J.P. Morgan Chase, New York Life Insurance Company, Brooks Brothers, Lehman Brothers, those were all founded on the backs of slaves. They benefited from trading slaves, and that's how the money was made. Okay, when you look here, these are three different pictures, okay? And I'm marketing, I'm, I'm, I'm marking three different periods. The first one was during slavery time. The second one was during the um, civil rights movement. And the third one was recently. What's the difference in those pictures? Do you see a major difference in those pictures? I'm going to show you this quick video. So we had Jim Crow, and then we've transitioned to what racism looks like today. We think, since the laws have changed, that racism doesn't exist. But let's take a look at what racism truly looks like in the period we're living in. Funny how the media covers white riots versus black protests. News. Seems like when the protesters are black, the media uses some pretty harsh words. The bad guys. Lawlessness, looting, wild animals, criminals, uh, and thugs. Thugs. Isn't it the right word? 
However, if you're white and you're tearing up the city because of a game, you're just young people. Young people danced on a flipped over card as UK fans did stupid things. Some maybe got a little out of control. Seeing a scene like this just shows how passionate the UK fans are. It's so tough to lose and unfortunately the ugly side that we sometimes see in sports. And notice how the police always show up to a black protest in military-grade equipment, and yet the media claims they're just doing nothing. It's inexplicable why the police are doing nothing. Let's mobilize the National Guard. If I'm a riot and I see the police doing nothing, I might feel like I have a license. You would. But at white riots, the cops actually are standing around doing nothing. Another group of cops over there just standing there. No one was really doing anything. These guys look like they could be watching a parade. And why is it that the leadership of the black community is always called into question? Where is the leadership? Leadership. The black leadership. The absence of leadership. And it goes back to leadership, but that leadership has to come from the community. But no one ever questions the leadership of white parents who let their kids burn down and vandalize their college campus. These are just uh, young college students who think they're playing some kind of a game with police officers. You know, sometimes they don't even call a white riot a riot. Party gone awry. Some fans got a bit too rowdy after the win. A dispute. A bloody brawl. There was some type of altercation. Waco, 170 arrested. Nine people dead. They're not thugs. Baltimore, no deaths, but it's a riot. Chock full of thugs. Thugs. Just thugs. What if the media portrayed white rioters, same as black protesters? Let's switch the audio and see how it plays out. Breaking news, violent protests. What you're looking at is the unraveling of the civil society. Criminals and thugs. And they're raising hell and they're destroying property. These idiotic thugs rioting and looting are hurting their own people. Wild animals burning buildings down. Especially if they know the media's all there, right? Got the cameras on everyone. It's, it's become its own reality show. Who acts like that towards a police officer? Think for yourself. Don't let racist media color your perceptions. Demand fairness in media coverage. Tell the media to put an end to calling black people thugs. So that's a lot of what racism looks like today in our country. Um, so I, I mentioned to you earlier that um, I'm biracial, so I have uh, three siblings who are white. Okay, and um, I got to, I'm, I was friends on Facebook, I'm friends on Facebook with two of them. I have one who lives in Philadelphia and the others are in Barbados. So last week, my sister posted this, the one in Barbados, she posted this particular meme right here. Should rioters and looters automatically lose their government assistance if they get arrested? So I responded to her and I said to her, this is racist. My sister immediately responded with, why are you always talking about color and race? This has absolutely nothing to do with race. And so this has been the rhetoric in our society, and this is essentially what racism has looked like, and I will explain to you why. We have coined certain um, words to associate with people of color. We'd, it, it's almost invisible where it's not, a, 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 okay, black people can't cross here, black people can't go here. But after civil rights, this is essentially what happened. We had something called the war on drugs, which Nixon enacted. And what happened was, the idea was, let's criminalize, for, we're, we're struggling with drugs, let's criminalize drugs, and let's incarcerate these people. 
okay? We began to label them. So we can no longer call them the N-word. We can no longer call them slaves. But we had still a negative idea of who they were. So we began to form these labels. When you look at these labels, if you check with yourself, what kind of images come up in your mind when you think of these words? That's because we've been conditioned. Many of you are in psychology. You've heard of Pavlov conditioning, right? When the dog, um, the door opens, the dog salivate. Well, we have been conditioned to associate these words with certain people. And it continues to be perpetuated in society um, all the time. Daryl Wing Sue, he coined, he's a, a, a great psychologist who's done a lot of work on race, and he talked about microaggressions, which is essentially what these are. They are the everyday slights, insults, indignities, and degrading messages sent to people of color by well-intentioned white people. So it's okay for the people, for me, it's okay if somebody's blatantly racist. Like one day, I think a few weeks ago, and this was a shock to me before the elections a few months ago, I was driving home, I was in the middle of the road, my window was rolled down, I was about to cross over, turn left, and I swore to you, I heard somebody shout, get out the road, you nigger. And I, yes, I said the word. And that was blatant racism. But what's more harmful is this invisible system that exists, that people of color know that exists, that continues to oppress them, but that is continually be denied. Now, a book I recommend to you is The New Dream Crow by Michelle Alexander. And she talks a lot about this system here. Um, she's the one that coined the phrase. And she talks about what most distinguishes the system that currently exists now is that we have criminalized people of color. She says, all people make mistakes. All of us are sinners. All of us are criminals. All of us violate the law at some point in our lives. In fact, if it was the worst thing you ever done was speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, you have just put yourself and others at more risk or harm than smoking marijuana in the privacy of your own living room. I've had former people tell me, oh yeah, people who are, are, are white say, yeah, everybody smoked drugs in the 60s and 70s. And I thought to myself, well, you smoked drugs in the 60s and 70s and got away with it, but people of color didn't get away with it. So this is what a lot of racism looks like today. So it's easy to not see it if we don't want to, because we talk a lot about personal responsibility, but we don't talk about the history and the systems that exist that criminalize people and continue to perpetuate these stereotypes. So I'll end this section, which is by this, um, which says, by Dave Chappelle, um, he says, things like racism are institutionalized. You might not know any bigots. You feel well like, well, I don't hate black people, so I'm not racist, but you benefit from it. Just by the merit or the color of your skin. The opportunities that you have, you're privileged in ways that you might not even realize because you haven't been deprived of certain things. We need to talk about these things in order for them to change. Okay, thank you. Um, next question we're gonna discuss is, how has racism influenced the current political climate? Uh, so I'll start this one off. Uh, how has racism influenced the current political climate? I'd like to just go back to a previous political climate for just a second and look <coughs> at anti-Islam uh, uh, anti sentiments after, before and after 9-11. Uh, so you could say before 9-11 there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about uh, anti 
Muslim sentiment. Um, but shortly after 9-11, then it just kind of skyrocketed, right? Uh, we could see a similar thing happening in, in the today's day and age uh, with respect to the current election. So after the election, we could see, uh, th so this is data collected by the Southern Poverty Law Center, we could see a tremendous spike in all sorts of um, you know, hate incidents uh, that are motivated against minority groups. Uh, so these are happening right after, uh, in, in about the month after the election in November. Uh, I, there's tons of pictures we could have uh, selected for this section, but just a quick one. Uh, Make America White Again is obviously playing off of the slogan of Make America Great Again. Um, very quickly, I want to play a quick uh, voicemail that was left at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, just in November. So if you just click the link. I think this is the gay church. I hope gay gays get kicked out of the country along with all the freaking Mexicans that are illegal that you guys are hiding illegally. Ah, Trump gets you. Trump, 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 Trump. Trump's going to kick your asses out of here and throw you over the wall. You dirty, rotten scumbags. Hillary is a cum scumbag bitch. Too bad. Wah, wah. Hillary lost. Hillary lost. Trump's going to get you. Throw you over the wall. Okay, so obviously that was motivated by the current political climate because if it wasn't, he wouldn't have been talking about Trump and Hillary, right? <laughs> um, so that's just a quick example of the tremendous increase in these sorts of things that have been happening. Uh, increases in uh, hate speech and increases in hate crimes. So the question is what to do about an increase in hate crimes? What do we do, call the police? Well, historically we could see that the police have had a terrible, as Shania discussed, a terrible relationship with racial and ethnic minorities and pretty much minorities of any group. Um, uh, many KKK members funnel their direction right into the police. Um, so reaching out to the police for the solution uh, could itself be problematic. What are we going to do, throw more people in prison? The prison is already a system that takes advantage of people, of, of poor people and people of color. Uh, so this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Audre Lorde, which is, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. If we see a problem in society, we can't rely on that same solution, that uh, the same issues that created that problem to find the solution. The solution has to exist outside of that problem. And uh, just, we're running out of time, so I just want to speed things up a little bit. So I'm going to pass it on. Um, I found this on Facebook and thought it was totally applicable to this topic of how has racism influenced our political climate. You know, I think that we would be remiss to be sitting here before all of you and not um, acknowledge the tumultuous couple of weeks that um, our nation has been experiencing. Um, it's been very hard for me, um, and I'm sure for many of you as well, to keep up with everything that's been going on. Um, there have been days where I just feel like um, the contents in my head are just kind of spilling over. Um, and basically what we're witnessing today is an unfolding of everything that um, Trump stood for. He has exploited ignorance and fear. Um, we're living in a time where there's a general public that's really been encouraged and emboldened by him. Um, some have argued, as Jeffrey has alluded to, that the Trump era is poised to be far more dangerous for Muslims um, than the post-9-11 era. Um, he has used inflammatory and offensive language towards people of color, and specifically he's targeted um, Latinos. 
so just as soon as he took office, right, we all um, watched him, uh, witnessed him signing off on a series of executive actions pertaining to immigration, pertaining to the border wall with Mexico, uh, the Muslim travel ban, which some are arguing that it's not a Muslim travel ban. I'm not really sure what else you can call it. Um, and he's, you know, promised to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act. And just, I think, within the last 24 or 48 hours, he gave his final approval um, to begin construction again with the Dakota Access Pipeline. So um, here's, here's what we know. Walls don't work. Uh, they give us a false sense of security. Uh, we also know that 40% of undocumented immigrants actually came here by plane and then overstayed their visa. So, you know, he wants to build this wall uh, to keep with his uh, campaign promise, um, but I'm not so sure it's going to do what he wants it to do. He's also signed off on a series of executive actions pertaining to travel from seven uh, Muslim-majority countries. This ban um, included green card holders and individuals with lawful visas. His executive order also indefinitely bans um, people from a very vulnerable um, segment of this world, um, which is Syria. So he's uh, banning Syrian refugees indefinitely. By doing this, um, he's basically punishing refugees. He's vilifying Muslims and Arabs. Um, he's portraying immigrants as criminals and as terrorists. And if it's terrorists and terrorism that um, he's worried about, I can't even really say his name, um, what we know is that there have been no fatal terror attacks in the U.S. by immigrants from the seven banned Muslim countries. None. We also know that the U.S. has been engaged either directly or by proxy uh, with countries listed on the ban. So it's like, we'll bomb you or we'll pay others to bomb you, but we're not going to give you a safe haven to turn to. Finally, according to the ACLU and other federal judges, I see CNN is uh, streaming, so you know everything's kind of fluid and changing by the hour. They're battling the, um, the whether or not this ban is actually constitutional. The federal judges and ACLU are calling this um, ban unconstitutional and unlawful. They've put a halt to it. Um, so you know we're not going to resolve all of this today. We're not going to remedy what's going on um, here in this room. But I do ask us to call on our courage. I ask us to call on our courage and to engage in meaningful and elevated conversations about the state of our nation. Um, I ask that during these times of uncertainty that we do not give in to fear, but that we lock arms in resistance and that we resist any forms of hatred and any forms of isms. Um, I hope and I, I, I believe and I hope that you too believe that it is really our duty um, to resist and it is our duty to stay informed. Okay. So really quickly, um, all of you, can everybody say 13th? Say 13th. 13th. Now remember that and go on to Netflix and watch that documentary. I was going to show you a clip from it, but we don't have time. This clip actually juxtapo juxtaposes our current president rhetoric with... Um, with what happened in the 1960s when he's talking about get those people out of here if it was if it was back in those days the police would have done had those people out of here and everything okay so pre obama and we everybody was politically correct you can't say certain words that's all we we didn't really deal with racism we just talked about political correctness okay obama gets in power people thought oh we're post racial um, and then some people were extremely enraged because he was in power all right.
Um, so what ended up happening after Trayvon Martin, when Suzanne talked about that, the Black Lives Matter movement started. It came out of, of people just being cons constantly frustrated and feeling oppressed, seeing over and over the police brutality, seeing over and over injustices happen. And so these three young ladies started this hashtag on Twitter, Black Lives Matter. And that keep trending and people started protesting. People was like, I'm sick of this. When you're sick of something, you want to change it. So they, given our, our social media today, given every uh, how we communicate today, we, there was a movement that was started, the largest movement since civil rights. This movement started and it encouraged people to come out and support. This, this conversation started being talked about. People were actually having conversations. There were videos going around. It's not um, that we have more racism today than we did before, it's just that it's visible now. So all of this happened and for a lot of white people, you weren't part of the, if you weren't part of this conversation, you were like, whoa, where did this come from? Are they trying to take my rights away? What's going on? All of these people coming in to my country or all of these people trying to take my rights away? So what ended up happening was this movement rose up. This movement that was anti-Obama, anti, I don't like what's going on in this country, I don't like what's happening. So then what ended up happening? So essentially, and I like this image here, Okay, we talk about equality. This is what equality looks like. So the Black Lives Matter movement and all other movements are trying to achieve this, okay? You can have equity over here where everybody stands on the same, um, you see the difference. Equity in the middle, um, sorry. You see the far end, okay, everybody has, everybody has the same box, right? But they can't see the same. You see the other end, which is more reality, and in the middle, where people have different boxes. And this is an analogy for what we need to do in society, because everybody didn't start the same place. If your grandparents benefited from J.P. Morgan Chase, it's not gonna be the same as a slave who was thrown out and, and, and didn't have anything to start with. So everybody was opposed to Obama, oh my gosh, black people are taking over, this is what's happening. This is the actual picture of Congress today. You, we can play a game, find the black people, find the minorities in here, and you could probably count them, maybe one, maybe two hands, right? So that's the reality of what America still looks like today. Um, but Trump fed on this movement, really quickly I'm finished. Trump fed on this movement, and this is essentially what happened. He saw this was happening, and he fed on it. And that's what bred our current political climate today. Oh yeah, and um, so if you heard of Van Jones, he coined this phrase called white lash, essentially, which he talks about this, Trump's winning was a response because white people were unhappy with other people of color fighting for equality and other people who are oppressed. Thanks, Shania. Okay, we're gonna move on, our last um, topic we're gonna talk about is what can we do now? What are the solutions? What kinds of things can you do, can we all do to help? Okay, so what can we do? There's a lot we can do. Uh, one of the first things we can do is, if you're a white person, is to recognize your privilege. Uh, so white privilege has been discussed, Shani discussed a little bit before. Um, so I just wanna kinda think about uh, that a little bit. So just as a quick example, oops. There we are. We had to skip some stuff. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were there. Uh, so as a quick example, maybe you heard over the weekend, uh, there was a 
a pair of guys who went into the Dearborn Police Department in Dearborn, Michigan, and they wanted to demonstrate and exercise their Second Amendment rights. So they went into the police department carrying guns with masks over their faces to demonstrate that they, uh, just to test the police whether or not um, they're, they'd be getting in trouble for carrying their guns around. Now I just want you to think for a second, what would happen if black people <laughs> covered their faces in a face mask and went into the police department carrying rifles and handguns? What do you, like, what do you think would happen? This is an example of white privilege. It's a privilege that white people don't have to think about whether or not they're going to be shot dead by police every time they see a police officer. Um, so one, one quick example is to think about uh, how do we recognize our white privilege. And just really quickly, no one's asking for um, people to apologize for their white privilege, but apologize for using it in such a way that requires the apology. Perfect. Um, so some other things that we can think of more on, a, I think, um, a macro level um, in terms of some of the changes that we can begin to work toward um, and maybe follow the lead in some of the um, organizations that are in the trenches doing this work uh, day in, day out. I mentioned uh, the Arab American Action Network, which I serve as a board member for. Um, these are the folks that are looking at things on a macro level as well, so some addressing some policy changes, I think, some systematic change. Um, one of the things, you know, we talked about Trayvon Martin, and we talked about Michael Brown. Um, one of the other things that we didn't get to in the presentation today, uh, we were going to talk about black Palestinian solidarity and what has inspired um, these two collective groups um, to come together and um, form their movements um, in unity. But um, and, uh, so with that, you know, with thinking about that, um, we want to think about the demilitarization demilitarization of the police, um, examining the ways in which police are encouraged to use excessive force and violence as their first resort, um, even when their own lives aren't in danger. So that's one example of um, systemic change. Um, lots of folks on the ground are working on establishing community control of the police. You know, I was listening to NPR a couple of weeks ago, and um, they were talking about how Rahm Emanuel wants to bring on an additional, I think, 1,000 police officers. Well, the fear, as you all can imagine, is that these officers are going to be trained in the same way that the current officers are trained in, which is to use excessive and illegal force. So establishing community control of the police kind of helps take away from that we're reconceptualizing, right, the role of the police. Um, in addressing institutionalized racism, um, we've talked about this just a bit. You know, there are systems in place that are disrupting black people's ability to achieve. So we want to examine that and we want to address the attitude of um, the country. Um, so I'll, I'll just stop there. Okay. So there was this Harvard, renowned Harvard, um, Harvard psychologist who did the study. And what he discovered was that by the age of three, he looked at 263 white children, and he, and, and he showed them pictures of black people, brown people smiling, looking angry, white people smiling, looking angry. And what he discovered was that every time the white student, the white kids, three years old, saw a picture of a black or brown person, whether they were smiling or angry, they labeled them as angry. When they saw a picture of a white um, of a white person, whether they were smiling or angry, they labeled them as smiling. This goes to the fact that we internalize this concept of racism from a very young age. So all of us are guilty. All of us discriminate. All of us have these stereotypes in our mind. So what we can do is first acknowledge it. I 
have something called the internalized racism inventory we're going to share out. And I want you to look at it in your own time and ask yourself those questions. So first, I want you to acknowledge that it exists, OK? Because what is also shown is that when, you, when something is said to you over and over and over again, you start to believe it, whether or not it's true. So you have to recondition your mind. You have to start, one, one of the things that a lot of people say that change their minds is make some friends. One of the things about the US I noticed is that it's very segregated in terms of race, culture, everything where people live. So Moraine, to me, is like the most diverse place I've ever worked at. It's extremely diverse. You have a large, diverse population. So right around you, make some friends that don't look or talk like you. And then when you make those friends, you can start to have real conversations, really talk about the issues that matter. And with all of this, you have to have an open mind. Then explore your own racial identity. If you're black, you've explored your identity. If you haven't, you need to. If you're white, a lot of times you're not forced to because you don't have to think about it. Anybody who's a majority in a country doesn't have to think about it because the format of the country was based on this majority. So explore your own identity and how it impacts how you think, how it impacts what you consider normal. Okay, And then finally, you can begin to speak up and be an ally and advocate. Okay, But first, you have to do those things. You have to bring what's unconscious to the conscious. If you don't do that, you cannot realistically address these issues. OK. Oh. All right, so what can you do now? To, f to finish up a little bit, so let me just ask white folks in the audience, <laughs> how many of you feel uncomfortable? Or how many of you feel like weird, like this doesn't apply to me? Yes, okay, no, oh, you might feel uncomfortable raising your hand right now too. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I'm glad that, that maybe parts of this stuck with you. So sometimes it does make white people feel like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? Well, here I, here's another thing that, I, you know, that I'm doing wrong and how, you know. So what we're really trying to do is say, you know, this is everybody's business to start looking at these things. Um, some of the big things you can do, number one, is act. Take some action. Uh, you know, whatever that looks like for you, maybe you join a local community group, maybe like Shanya was saying, you make friends with some different people. Um, some really good apps, if you're interested, that you can download. One is called Congress. The other is called Mobile Justice. Um, these are both really good. Mobile Justice is actually an app where you can document when you see discrimination happening. You videotape it and it gets uploaded right to um, ACLU website. Um, social media, like Shanya was saying, she saw this social media post that was she felt was a microaggression. She was able to, um, you know, talk with her sister. I don't know if it was resolved very well, but <laughs> maybe you know maybe it's still in discussion. But talking with people when you see these things that might be hurtful to other people, um, volunteer or donate money, you know, whatever you have available to you. And finally, as my kids would say, <laughs> get woke and stay woke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we have some time for questions. If anybody has questions. Um, and we had some paper that should have been around that yes. if you didn't want to ask a question out loud, you can write it down and Troy will read it. I have index cards, so if you don't want to use the microphone, you can write it down. If you don't want to talk to me, there's also a pile of index cards in the back on the shelf, and you can write it and hand it to me. We, we just want to note also that um, we have some recommendations for um, books. I actually brought one with me. I forgot to bring the other one um, by Mark Lamont Hill, but really good reads. 
if you're interested in some of the topics that we covered today. And we are in a library, so. <laughs> okay, if you have any questions, Troy's got a microphone back there. Anybody have anything they want to? If you're not comfortable asking, you can write it on the sheet of paper as well. Hey, uh, so I feel like we talked about the meme that came up that was racist, and it was a very short conversation. Um, and it may not have been clear exactly why that meme was racist, so Shannon, would you um, be kind enough to kind of talk through some of those things? Because we see those kinds of things go through all the time, and I feel like that's a big one that we can start to see, oh, maybe these things are racist. So if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit more. Okay. So this meme doesn't mention anybody of color, but as I said, we associate certain words. So we associate government benefits with people of color, even though research shows that there are more white people on government benefits than not. We associate criminals with people of color, rioters and looters. So this continues to feed that message into our head. Even, even criminals, when you look at it, one million of the two million um, prison population are of color but yet black people use drugs less than white people so why is that right so all of this feeds in and so when we see these things it may not say i hate black people or i hate muslim people but when you start to label all muslims are terrorists all black people are in government assistance all black people are rioters or looters that's racist Um, you guys went over basically how to stand united and stay strong and fight against all these ideas that are around us, but the question, I have a, just a serious question basically, do you guys think racism will ever actually end? I, I, I don't know that racism will ever actually end, but I think we can come to a place where we can treat each other better than we do. Um, I mean, the, the demographics are definitely shifting and, and I think that's part of what's happening politically is that we're seeing this slow um, browning of the U.S., I guess you might call it, where, where white people will be in the minority in the next 20 years. And I think that's a really uncomfortable place for a lot of people to be. So I think we're seeing maybe this upsurge with um, our new president and with w what's been happening. There's some reaction to that. Jeff, you might be able to speak to that as well. I, yeah, I'd like to respond to that just a little bit. And also the idea about the changing demographics of the United States. While we can see that white people might soon become a numerical minority of the population, it's still very much so that they would become the dominant, that they would remain the dominant group. Because even if they're a numerical minority of the population, they're still more likely to be occupying positions of power in government, as CEOs of corporations, on boards of uh, trustees of banks and corporations, and so on. So as long as white people are in power of all the major social institutions in society, I don't really see, unless that changes, I don't really see racism going away. Um, I'd like to address it briefly as well. And if I can um, go to a picture, I'm not sure where, maybe it's. So this is the piece we, di <coughs> we didn't get to. But um, uh, I mentioned the um, protests that were happening at O'Hare Airport shortly after Trump signed the executive action pertaining to the travel ban. 
And um, I've been protesting in the streets of Chicago, DC, New York, probably since I was five years old. Um, as a Palestinian, you just can't escape politics. Um, the, the occupation of Palestine under Israeli military rule has been going on for 69 years now. And so when I say I've been protesting since I was uh, five years old, um, mainly I've been out in the streets um, because of uh, that, uh, because of the occupation of the Palestinian people. Um, Last weekend, or two weekends ago, when I was out at O'Hare Airport with 3,000 plus individuals, I can't tell you how moved and inspired I was that night. I don't think there was one other person in my vicinity that I knew. There, it was such a diverse crowd, and it was incredible. It was something that I wasn't really used to as someone who is accustomed to being out in the streets and protesting for different things. Um, so. You know, do I think racism is going to end? I don't think so, but I, I do feel inspired that, you know, for every act of nonsense that is out there, there is an act of decency or 12 acts of decency to kind of combat that. So um, I'd like to hope that we're moving in the right direction. Um, I hope for my girls' sake that things will get uh, better for them. Yeah. Um, because we, how we think, and we think in all these clusters and groups, and we tend to, to categorize, racism is gonna have a hard time ending. But as I showed you before, slavery was 200 years, segregation, and then now. So I feel like we're moving forward. The fact we're even having these conversations and it's not invisible is huge, okay? The fact that Suzanne just talked about seeing all those people out there is huge, okay? But we have to keep at it. We have to keep working at it. And as the demographics change, and I think we will see, eventually see a power shift, okay? But that won't be for a number of years. And so as your generation rises up and becomes part of this movement, um, then I think we will start to see a shift. Uh, so, what are you guys' thoughts on the uh, unpeaceful protests? Like, whether they have broken w windows and like setting places on fire? Um, I disagree with non-peaceful protests because I think that feeds into the um, the other. S I don't want to say the other side, but I think it feeds into this idea that oh, see, here we go. Let's confirm this that these people are criminals. These people are, um, you know wild and, and things like that. So I, I think it can do more harm than good, in my opinion. I'm torn on the issue of uh, peaceful protest versus uh, violent protest. Uh, while peaceful protest can accomplish some things, um, there are some things it can't accomplish. For instance, if we think about uh, uh, gay pride, uh, gay pride started in 1969 as a riot at the Stonewall Bar. Um, constantly, police were going into the bars and um, checking to see if people were wearing enough clothing that were labeled appropriate for their gender, basically as a way to accost people whom we would call transgender today. And there were a lot of peaceful protests that never really did anything. And eventually then, pro people who were in the bars who were constantly being harassed by the police decided to throw bricks at the police. And now we have pride every summer as a result of that. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, I sometimes take issue with, um, you know, this, uh, you know, they're rioting, um, they're breaking car windows, they're breaking uh, the windows of storefronts, and so on and so forth. 
I think that although uh, maybe we don't agree with that, those sorts of actions, that we have to understand the sentiment and where it's coming from, right? Um, homelessness is violence, right? Poverty is violence. War is violence. So we get so stuck on that broken, shattered window in a storefront, and we get so stuck on the broken glass window, but we're not thinking of the context of where this rage and where this anger is coming from. And when I talk about a shift in perspective, then we need to kind of really um, have a shift in perspective and see things through other people's lens, right? So what we're doing is we're, again, blaming the victim. Mm -hmm. Well, look at those rioters out there, but we're not thinking of the context in which they're living in. They're living in poverty, they're, they're homeless, they are, um, you know, there's, there's war raging in their countries or in their inner cities. So, you know, I think we need to kind of take a step back and, and think about that. So if you think about the video I showed, right? And you saw white folk um, really upset they, that whoever their team was lost the game and they were, uh, you know, just upset, which was the word they used. They didn't use rioting or whatever. And then you see black people um, doing things that were violent. Uh, oh, they're rioting. And maybe 5% of protests come out to riots. But then we have conversation about 90% of the time about the riots. But let's talk about when you can push, th we should be thankful that we haven't seen more riots. Because when you push a person to the limit, or a group of people to the limit, you don't know what can happen, okay? And so start looking at the violence that precipitates these behaviors. The violence we've seen in society enacted on these people, okay? When Christopher Columbus came here and they conquered, what they do? They killed off the native, they, these were the first acts of violence. Okay, so all of these images. So I hate to hear, and I hate to hear, oh, most protests are peaceful and the idea that we have to justify it. It just upsets me to no end. <laughs> yes. Sorry. You know, if, if you don't mind, just a little bit more about that. And it, it goes back to um, the death, uh, the murder of Michael Brown and in Ferguson. And um, here's what some, invest, um, some federal investigation uh, findings were. Um, let's see. In a scathing report issued in March, the Justice, the Justice Department called on Ferguson to overhaul its criminal justice system, declaring that the city had engaged in so many constitutional violations that they could be corrected by abandoning its entire approach to policing. And mm -hmm. it goes on, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they were finding that the city and the officers that run the city were actually engaging in constitutional violence for years to come before even the death of Michael Brown. So again, thinking about the context in which things are happening in. Um, so I have a question about stereotyping. Like how do you guys think if stereotyping will ever end or how you should, I don't know how to explain it. Like you always hear like, oh, that's, not, I don't know if you guys see the memes, like all oh, that sounds about white and stuff like sounds about right. Or like talking about how blacks are ghetto, stuff like that. Like how do you think we can fix the stereotyping? How do you think that we could wor work around um, trying to get past the whole stereotyping, trying to be like, we can all be equal instead of giving ideas to each other. Like whenever you view somebody or things like that. So when I came to this country as an immigrant, um, and I see on TV um, the portrayal that TV has portrayed of, of black people in this country, and I saw it um, just through TV, and I thought, oh, well, America's the land of opportunity, right? So you come here and you think, oh my gosh, what's wrong with these people? And even today, like, I have to check myself because 
Some of these stereotypes have been so embedded in my mind. So walking down the street, do you clutch your purse closer when you see a person of color, a black male, okay? When it's likely that that white male next to you could be the person who's gonna snatch your purse and not the black person. So you have to bring it to the forefront, you have to be conscious of it, and you have to constantly check yourself, okay? Because the way how our mind works, we will want to stereotype or to understand stuff, but we have to check ourselves and then we have to check others. It was the hardest thing for me to check my sister and then my other sister in Philadelphia inboxed me this nasty, nasty message talking about how hateful, um, how wrong I was and how other white family members had blocked me on Facebook. And that was the hardest thing I had to do, but I had to step up and do what was right because I realized it was wrong. So that's what, what I'd say about that. I would just like to reiterate Shania's point from earlier about make friends with people who are different from you. Mm -hmm. agree. I agree with everything there. <laughs> yeah, and I think we just need to call each other out, mm -hmm. you know, in a very kind of diplomatic, um, teachable moment kind of way. I actually had to call somebody out yesterday because they were using a derogatory term. And so um, we just need to check each other, mm -hmm. you know. I, I need to get checked sometimes, okay? So, um, I think we just need to do that. I'm coming. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I got one. I hear this like a lot in my family because sometimes the males in my family can be pretty racist, but they like to talk about how uh, when pe uh, people come into America, every like race has changed except for the blacks and the Indians as well. Would you think that's true or? the complete opposite. What do you mean by change? Like they have changed like um like they've risen up better in society. Like their economic status or like their social status is like uh better than um like someone who is in poverty or someone who is like a drug dealer or some other stuff like that. So I think, I think kind of what you're talking about is that um, the stereotypes about black people have been in your family are more embedded than stereotypes about other groups. Is that right? Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, what, what my family like tells it is, like you know how people come into America and then they say, I want a better life so I'm moving to America. Blacks would say, I want a better life by moving to America, but then their lifestyle, they claimed, has not changed. And it's the same thing for the Indians as well. Like Mexicans who come into America, they have a better life. Um, like Greeks who move into America, they have a better life. Like every race and ethnicity has a better life when they move to America because they made the effort to make that change. But the blacks did not, and the Indians did not as well when they moved to America. Like, that's what I'm trying well, to say. Is that still a thing? I, I think part of the, the issue is they're talking about two separate things. Um, blacks and Indians, blacks were brought here as slaves. Against their will. <laughs> against <laughs> against yes. their will. And so yes. uh, there's a whole host of, yes. of problems that, that are a result of, of generational trauma, poverty, you know, um, the systemic racism, there's yeah. so many issues yeah. that are impinging on that. That, that it's, I think 
what you're talking about is a, a kind of a simplistic view and really not understanding the context. People who come here as immigrants are making a choice. Usually they have resources. It's a totally different situation than people who were forced here or um, it, with Native Americans, there was you know, the genocide that preceded the ones who are still left. But again, don't underestimate trauma and the intergenerational trauma of people who've been here against their will or kind of pushed off to the side like the Native Americans. That's a huge impact. We know in psychology, I mean, the impact of trauma on people in general, but look at it when you're looking through generations. It's, it's really complex. I would just like to quickly add uh, that there were several uh, government programs that have been designed to help white families. We had government programs that were designed to allow white families to buy a house with a low interest rate that these programs weren't allowed for um, African-American families and so on. Um, I know you're asking a question about your family, so just really quickly, I would recommend that your family take Sociology 210 with Dr. Akasha Blahusiak. <laughs> so that's my recommendation for your family. Okay, how about a round of applause for our panel members? Thank you.